Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at, uh, I think this is class 14 or 15 of our structured study of jhana. Pardon me? Okay. Um, and the second part on dependent origination on the Paticca Samuppada Sutta. Uh, this is what the Buddha awakened to, and he described that awakening and the path to awakening as for noble truth. So, um, and it's a very... Uh, basic and straightforward sutta that is probably the most corrupted of any of the uh, modern applications of Buddhism. Uh, Dependent origination simply states that from ignorance, a very specific ignorance, that's ignorance of four noble truths, all manner of stress and suffering arises. So right off the the bat, the Buddha is telling us what the problem is and what the solution is. Uh, As he expands on how this occurs, He teaches us that from ignorance of of Four Noble Truths comes fabrications as a requisite condition. Ignorance of Four Noble Truths as a requisite condition comes fabrications. Fabrications are just that. It's a corrupted way of looking at ourselves in relation to the world. And from that fabrications comes consciousness, meaning an ongoing thinking now rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, prone to ongoing fabrications that itself then is prone to to stress and suffering. Uh, and so I'm going to pick up not quite where we left off, I think a little bit before that, last week, um, and get right to that point. What are fabrications? Because this is what we do to ourselves and others. And like you could say to all of creation, our view is, is rooted in ignorance that gives, prone, that gives rise to a fabricated view. And what are fabrications? The Buddha's words. There are three fabrications. There's bodily fabrications, verbal fabrications, and mental fabrications. So, again, not to simplify this, but this is how human beings live in the world. We live in a physical body. That that physical body can verbalize itself, and it forms its view and its relationship to itself in the world through its mentality, the way that it thinks. And if all of that is rooted in a fabrication, in other words, the way that I view my form is a fabricated or corrupted view. The way that I express myself comes out in my verbal fabrications. And all of that is encapsulated by the way that I think. And all of that is part of a fabrication. It simply describes how a human being lives in the world. And if a human being, being's mind is fabricated, it manifests in these three ways. And then the Buddha describes the, the, the central theme of the Dhamma and what is ignorance. So again, there's nothing left up to doubt. There's nothing left up to conjecture. The Buddha teaches us what this specific aspect of ignorance is. Ignorance is not knowing stress. So everybody can understand what stress is. And if you can understand what stress is, then you can understand stress. This is a human dhamma for human beings. There's nothing magical, mystical, or otherworldly about it. But if you think about the human being's preoccupation with stress, you realize that this is the common human problem. The Buddha could almost as accurately describe the first noble truth as saying there is stress, as saying there is, a distra- there is distraction. Because it is the preoccupation with stress that distracts us away from this present moment and keeps our minds bouncing back, bouncing back and forth from past hurts and stressors to future hurts and stressors or a future salvation from past stress and suffering. And so because of that conditioned way of thinking, we're never living in this present moment. We're always grasping after or clinging to something we hope resolves the issue of stress in this moment. And of course, because we, we've, we've lost the ability to be present in this moment, we've lost the ability to address our stress in this moment. 
the purpose of jhana meditation. To develop concentration so so that we can be present for what is occurring in our life. And as far as the Dhamma is concerned, to be present for the recognition and abandonment of our contributions rooted in ignorance. Ignorance is not knowing stress. Ignorance is not knowing the origination of stress. Ignorance is not knowing the cessation of stress. And ignorance is not knowing the eightfold path that leads to the cessation of stress. So is there anybody here that can't understand that? I'll answer for you. I don't, I don't think you can misunderstand it. It's very simple and straightforward. The whole problem, the reason why we practice the Dhamma, is to understand stress. And even more accurately, to understand our contributions to stress. Because you could say that stress occurs naturally as a consequence of having a human life. That's the Buddha's description of stress. Birth is stressful. The Buddha's not saying that, that the, the act of birth is stressful. It is to any mother. I, you know, I, I can't uh, describe it because I haven't done that. But the physical act of birth is stressful. But that's not what we're talking about. What the Buddha's saying is, as a consequence of having a human life, there will be stress. There's nothing personal about that. And then he simply says, sickness is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Not getting what is desired is stressful. Getting what is undesired is stressful. And it would always conclude that description of dukkha by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. The five clinging aggregates are the ongoing personal experience of stress. Excuse me. It's the personalization of stress. This is called ignorance. Now the Buddha, he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't say you're all ignorant fools. Good luck with it. He tells us how to undo it. Now, from the remainderless fading and cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of fabrications. So fabrications don't end as a direct assault on fabrications. Fabrications end by understanding ignorance. Remember how dependent origination starts. From ignorance as a requisite condition comes fabrications. So once we can recognize what we are ignorant about, fabrications naturally cease. Once you understand anything, any conjecture you might have about that ceases. The Buddha continues, from the cessation of fabrications comes the cessation of consciousness. Now remember, the Buddha is talking about a very specific application of consciousness. He's not talking about annihilation. He's talking about the cessation of consciousness, meaning ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. When we recognize and abandon ignorance, that type of thinking, that type of consciousness, remember, it's not some grand cosmic consciousness, it's consciousness that encapsulates the common human problem of ignorance. Once ignorance is recognized and abandoned, that type of thinking simply falls away. Again, it's not a direct assault on our own thinking. It's a recognition and abandonment in this moment of the manifestations of ignorant thinking. And so letting go of ignorance. From the cessation of that type of thinking, from, that, from the cessation of consciousness comes a cessation of name and form. Name and form, or the Pali word remembered from last week, is nama rupa. It simply means I've given name to this form. It's the beginning of self-referential views. It's the beginning of self-identification, nama rupa, or name and form. From the cessation of self-identification, is what the Buddha is saying, from the cessation of self-identification, of name and form, comes the cessation of the sixth sense pace. Remember from last week, the sixth sense base are our five physical senses and the sixth sense consciousness. So again, the Buddha is not teaching annihilation. He's teaching how do we end ignorance of four noble truths. From the, the cessation of the sixth sense base simply means that we stopped using our senses in an ignorant way. We stopped using our senses to validate what we're seeing that is rooted in ignorance. And it is through this contact at the sixth sense base that we do maintain our ignorance or recognize and abandon that ignorance. This is how a human being lives their lives, through their senses. So if we're interpreting our senses out of ignorance, the conclusions 
And the perspective developed that way will itself be rooted in ignorance and so prone to distraction and stress and suffering. If those, if the sixth sense base is resting in understanding, then everything that we come in contact with will be interpreted and perceived from reality rather than our own fabrications. Does everybody understand that? Does anybody not? Because this is a crucial point. So you hear me often say that the, the Dhamma is practiced in this moment. We practice wise restraint informed by jhana meditation and the refined mindfulness developed through the Eightfold Path in this moment. As we come in contact with the external world through our sixth sense base, we practice the Dhamma. So now our sixth sense base is informed by understanding. And so everything that comes in contact from this point on is impersonal, and cannot lead to discontent or conflict because we understand what's occurring. Is that clear to everyone? Think about that. And, 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 I, and you don't have to think about it. In a broad sense, you do. But in, the, in an experiential sense, you've all had this experience of an impersonal, dispassionate experience of this moment. When did that occur? Does anybody want to answer? Anybody? Because you've Jhana. all experienced it. In jhana? In jhana meditation, gold star. Every time you recognize that you're distracted by a feeling or a thought or a thought attached to a feeling, meaning an emotion, and remember to breathe, you are having that moment of wise restraint. You are having that moment of, of uh, dispersonal impersonal, dispassionate experience of human life. And the Eightfold Path simply expands that moment of concentration to each and every moment of our life. So what we're learning here is that the experience that we develop ourselves in jhana meditation is the same experience that we take off of our cushion and maintain through refined mindfulness of the Eightfold Path. From the cessation of the sixth sense base comes the cessation of contact, meaning now as I, in, as I come in contact with the world, because I've developed understanding, I'm no longer feeding a corrupted view. I'm simply resting in understanding. So contact is no longer the problem. It's the reward. And it's not a fabricated reward. It's simply the reward of having a human life. What we've all been missing, but not recognizing what the problem is. Why am I always grasping after more or something additional or something new, something romantic? Because I don't understand that in this moment, I am as whole and complete as I ever can be. And from that foundation of a complete human being, a fully awake and fully mature human being, I can now experience the rest of my life, whatever is left. Hence the urgency of developing the Dhamma. Because we might as well start living our human life today rather than tomorrow. And that is possible. Remember, the Buddha taught that awakening takes, occurs in this lifetime. And only in this lifetime. From the cessation of contact comes the cessation of feeling. In other words, I'm not using my feelings to, to fuel self-referential views. It's just a feeling that arises and passes away, like we experience in jhana meditation. From the cessation of feeling comes the cessation of craving. It's just that simple. When I stop generating self-referential feelings, fabricated feelings, the Buddha teaches us, then craving simply falls away. In this moment, I'm no longer defining myself by how I feel. In fact, I'm learning what it means to be a human being by, by impersonally experiencing my feelings rather than let my feelings describe who I am. Now I'm alive. Now I can have any feeling 
that it's possible for a human being to feel without the need for it to be any different. That's liberation. I don't have to fear a future feeling of maybe sorrow or loss or anger or joy or bliss. I don't have to grasp after or have any aversion to any of it. I can experience the full gamut is that a right word? Of the human experience. Because I don't need it to be one way, one confining way. Remember, the Buddha used to describe his life prior to his awakening as that confining place. And remember, the Buddha lived as a prince in his father's kingdom. He had everything anybody could want. And it was a confining place. Why? Because he was constantly grasping after more. And he didn't understand that that more wasn't more things or more asceticism. It was simply understanding that there was no way to add more to this moment. Because in this moment, I am experiencing the fullness of a human life. I think you've heard me say, remember that a few weeks ago I was talking on a slightly different subject, but the Dharma brings us to a true experience of eternity. Because eternity can only occur in this present moment. There's no eternity a million years from now, is it? That's a fabrication. There is no million years from now for me. There may be in, in, in physics and in biology. But in humanity, there's only now. And we've discovered a way, because a human being figured it out 2,600 years ago, of how to live on the edge of eternity moment by moment. That's liberation. That's exhilaration, by the way. From the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging and maintaining. The key to peace and happiness. Remember when, when the, the Buddha gave his first discourse, the Dhamma Sutta. He presented the Four Noble Truths to his five buddies that he was wandering around northern India with for six years, all seeking understanding. And he presented this to Kandana. And Kandana said, all conditioned things that arise are subject to cessation. The Buddha said, you are now Anakandana, meaning the one who understands. He understood, it, he understood impermanence and the foolishness of clinging to anything that is conditioned. From understanding this comes a cessation of clinging and maintaining. Clinging and maintaining what? Bring it back to the beginning of dependent origination. Clinging to and maintaining views that are ignorant of Four Noble Truths, that can only maintain fabrications feeding ongoing consciousness rooted in that ignorance. From the cessation of clinging and maintaining comes the cessation of becoming. Becoming what? Becoming further ignorant. From the cessation of becoming comes the cessation of birth. And that's an important point, excuse me. And it's the reason why I named the, the main book Becoming Buddha, Becoming Awakened, because that's the whole point. That's the, the crux of the Dhamma. The importance of understanding wise restraint. Because in this moment, each and every human being, us more so now because of the Dhamma, we have the opportunity to do so. But each and every human being in this moment has the opportunity to awaken, to become awakened. But if our minds are still rooted in that original ignorance that is required for continued fabrication, then in this moment I can only become what? Become further ignorant. That's the possibility and the opportunity of each and every moment. And we understand that now. In this moment, I have the opportunity to become further ignorant and ignore what I know to be the truth now of Four Noble Truths, or I can become awakened. And that is the only choice any human being ever has. We're fortunate enough to know it. Until I came to the Dhamma, I didn't know it. I was doing all kinds of practices that I thought would lead to some type of liberation that, were, that had to continue my ignorance because they were rooted in ignorance. And then I, caught, I came across what an, what an awakened human being actually taught. And he taught the one thing that could end the problem of ignorance how to understand it, how to understand stress. From the cessation of becoming further ignorant comes the cessation of birth. That is the, the most important teaching on um, karma and rebirth. In other words, the Buddha didn't, wasn't concerned in, in 
um, negated any chasing after a future physical birth or non-physical birth. He taught over and over again that that was pure foolishness. He taught that what was most important to understand about birth was what am I giving birth to in this moment. And if, it, and if what I'm giving birth to in this moment is rooted in the Eightfold Path, then I'm giving birth to another moment that is inclined towards awakening. If I'm giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance, what am I giving birth to? Simply another moment rooted in ignorance. And so from this you can understand that through jhana meditation and that moment of interrupting ongoing ignorance in my feelings and thoughts, I'm now interrupting that constant progression from one moment giving birth to another moment of ignorance. I've interrupted the flow. I've developed enough concentration that I can now apply that refined mindfulness to see things clearly. From the cessation of birth comes the cessation of sickness, aging, death, sorrow, pain, distress, despair, and confusion. Wisdom brings a cessation to the entire mass of stress, of stress and suffering. Wisdom, understanding Four Noble Truths, brings a cessation of the entire mass of stress and suffering. That's the end of the Paticca Samuppada Sutta. Thank you. And I just want to point out that uh, beginning in three weeks, uh, our Tuesday and Thursday uh, structured study is going to be a five-class, six-class study of karma and rebirth and the meaning of becoming. And, uh, and it'll, it'll be recorded. I'm just pointing that out that it, it's, uh, it's, it's a nice way to end the year, but it also puts a fine point on this whole idea of karma, karma and rebirth and what, and what am I becoming in this moment. So we can see in these two classes the importance of this particular sutta and understanding it clearly. But the takeaway is to remind ourselves that it is ignorance of Four Noble Truths that leads to all manner of stress and suffering, and that the Eightfold Path is the path for understanding and abandoning everything that is ignorant of Four Noble Truths. So uh, let's go around the room, and I want to hear what you have to say. Let's start with uh, ladies first. Louise, how are you today? Hi, guys. <laughs> I was just thinking that... Um... I've got another friend that I'd like to invite who, I mean, that wouldn't be the only woman in the class anymore, so, um, but anyway, thank you, thank you for that, um, I'm hearing a bit of an echo, actually, no, I'm okay now, uh, I, these past two weeks have been really intense, and I have found it hard to have a concentrated mind, if I'm honest. I kind of feel a little bit like superwoman, what I've managed to kind of achieve in the last two weeks. And um, and so I found in Jana tonight that my mind was going to the fact that I've got fresh bed covers just out of the tumble dryer and I was imagining going to bed early and having fresh bedding and like <laughs> and how I'd relax into my evening so I'd wake up tomorrow. And I'd, and I didn't let it go. I just allowed myself to kind of continue with that, um, I don't know, fantasy of a nice relaxed evening and early night, um, switching off completely. And yeah, I wondered how does how does that work? Because one of the one of the things I wrote down which I really liked was um, in this moment I am. Oh no, sorry. There's no way to add more to this moment because in this moment I'm experiencing the the full of human life. I, if I really wanted to be doing that, I would be doing it. But I'm in this moment and I'm experiencing this in this moment, and I really get that. So yeah, I just I guess I don't know if it's a naive question, but um, was I doing it wrong? Yeah, I'm, no. In, in, in fact, Louise, I, I would say you're. I would say you're developing jhana exactly as it's meant to be developed. Um, there, there's still um, what you're what you're experiencing. The, the 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 tension in your dharma practice is doubt. Uh, you're you're just questioning whether you're having an a, an actual experience. Um, 
there's many talks on the five hindrances, and one of them is, is doubt. And it's just taught by the Buddha and by me now to simply recognize that it's occurring. Uh, you're, you're moving into an unfamiliar um, quality of mind. And so that's natural. But even the experience of uh, anticipating the, 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 the warm bedclothes, uh, that, can, that can be an experience of pure Dhamma or it could be an, an experience of taking things personal. Meaning in this moment, I'm miserable and unhappy because I can't wait to get to bed. Or you can just be appreciative of the fact that you have a nice warm quilt to get to. There's yeah. nothing unmindful about that. That's reality. If you need the warm quilt in order for you to be fulfilled or content in the world, now you're caught up in something. But it sounds to me like you're just describing your life to yourself. And we should be doing that. In, in the United States here, we have Thanksgiving. And despite all the craziness going on in the world today, it's a good idea to, to be mindful of, of the good things that are happening in our, to our lives. That's not, that's not taking things personal. It's, it's simply being present for what's here. And so as you become more and more comfortable with Louise, you'll, you'll also be comfortable with, with the trappings of Louise, if you will. And you'll, you, you'll be okay with what, what is there. And it won't, it, won't be a, a, it won't be a point of tension in any way. Am I, am I being clear about this, Louise? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Good. And thank yeah, you for I sharing that. Yeah. I thought. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you. Something to be thankful thank for. Thanks, Louise. Jeff, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How's everybody? Um, I don't know. I've got a couple of thoughts uh, that came to mind. One, is, one. I have a question, if I may. Please. I, I th I'm thinking of of uh, consciousness. Is is it wrong to think of that as? Self-consciousness? Uh, I think it's, it just depends on how you're, uh, the context and, and how you're viewing it. I, I mean, you could say all consciousness is self-consciousness. So then, then that leads to, it, it really, again, is the, kind of the crux of the Buddha's Dhamma. How do I view myself? If I view myself correctly, which is a, simply a reference point to what's occurring, then... Self-consciousness is an accurate term. If it's self-consciousness that's rooted in self-referential views, then we're identifying the problem. Yeah, okay. So All I don't right, know that if, if that's a very satisfying answer or not. It, you, well, it does help, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah I understand. In, in one sense, all consciousness is self-consciousness. Um, I, I, I guess I think of one as being... Uh, maybe mindful or skillful and another of being self-absorbed. Yep. Just that way. Yeah. Skillful or unskillful. Okay. It, again, yeah. we're not, we're not, um, as an awakening human being, we're not separated from the aspects of myself that are ignorant. It's all one thing. And I, and this can even be a little bit difficult to understand that we're not trying to eliminate something because it's all part of us. I'm free to think as ignorantly as I want to, you know, um, until I realize it no longer serves me, and then I might think a different way. But it's all one mind. You know, and, and when you really get down to it, the, the reality of the world isn't based on how I, how I think about it or see it, but my experience of the reality of the world is. And that's up to me. You know, that is my self-consciousness. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, Thank Brian. You. Hey, John, how are you? Good, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, uh, to Jeff's point on the consciousness, it's all, in my head I saw that as, as consciousness of the ego. And, and all of this is just a derivative of the, the ego and anatta. Yep. And, and anatta can't help but be of a suffering nature because of impermanence, right? So yep. that's its nature. And, and I, I think it's this just going back through this, I think now for the third or fourth time and maybe the sixth or seventh, but it'll actually click, click. But it's getting a little clearer that, you know, this developing that, that mindfulness of the present moment 
in subduing the the subduing Anata, you, you do start to see the cessations of these these items coming into existence. And then to your point, right? You're just experiencing now without any judgment or or wishing or wanting. It just it just is what it is. It doesn't even need a name. Like the, the, you don't have to call the tree a tree. It's just it's just there. Yeah. You can just experience that as it is. So. Um, Thank you for this, John. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Well said. Jordan, how are you today? Hi, John. Yeah, I'm good. Um, I, I'm not really feeling it. Um, the talky mood today, and I don't really have much to say, so I think I'm just going to absorb and take a rain check on, um, on commenting on things. All right. I'm, I'm glad okay. you joined us today, Jordan. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. Tom, how are you? Uh, you're muted, Tom. Tom oh, I'm muted. There you sorry, go. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so thanks for the teaching. I think um, just a couple of things quickly to reflect on. Yeah, for me, the first one was um, more or less what we were just discussing at the beginning, just how how even that that I get a lot of the teachings now and and it's just it's crazy how often i forget them when i'm caught up in life and so this week has just been a great example of that some things have happened and some difficult conversations have happened and i've just become a bit obsessed i've just gone into sort of um you know self-referential views Mm -hmm. and it's just amazing you know i've been studying this and i and i subscribe to it in in every possible way um, I practice and as I said I do if I take a step back I, it's definitely brought me more peace and contentment overall um, and it continues to bring me more and more of yeah. that but it's just a, it's just so funny how you you know you just fall back in uh, that that slaying that dragon yeah. <laughs> is a long process um, and it rears its head um, as um, um, I think um uh, uh, yeah, Brian was saying earlier, it rears its head um, so often. So that was one thing. And then and the, the other thing, um, which I really liked that you said, um, was, you know, I don't have to fear a future feeling. Um, I can experience the whole um, um, gamut of human feeling without it needing to be any different. And this just got me thinking about uh, something I, I do sort of reflect on quite a lot is a future a fear of a future feeling of loss so and i don't know if it's the same for anyone else but it's with loved ones you know and especially perhaps older people in family or whatever that you i i i think about this a lot and i'm 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 so scared my um of already scared of losing for example my parents um and it, it consumes me um well not it's not all the time but I, I i have these thoughts and so just that that something for me to really reflect on from today's class is that that you know it's such a shame um you, you know there's no need to fear that future feeling because that future feel there's the potential for me to be at ease with feelings as they pass and yeah. there will be difficult feelings in the future but the the great sort of as you said liberation of jhana practice and 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 the dharma is the chance to be at ease with that you know those difficult feelings when they come up so that's just something for me to sort of reflect on and hopefully to continue to remind myself of and to 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 sort of further encourage me in my practice um i think so thank thanks for that yeah thank you tom the um uh again you're describing um Developing an understanding of impermanence, including the fact that our, in a very practical way, that our loved ones are impermanent. Uh, it's good to be thinking about these things, even though it might be uncomfortable. And you reminded me, um, I had the first death that I remember that I was exposed to was a good friend of mine. He was more more of a brother to me than my own brothers. Uh, died unexpectedly when he was fourteen years old, and I still remember going into the. Uh, in a, a Catholic 
um, to the Catholic service and walking into the church, and it was a rather small church, and seeing a casket with a body of someone I knew for the first time. And I felt awful about my friend Ken, but my, I still remember now, this is 52 years ago, geez. I still remember what my thought, my next thought was, was holy crap, my parents are going to be like that one day. And it scared the hell out of me. And it stayed with me for a long, long time. Uh, I lost both of my parents later on in life. In fact, my, I just buried my father about a year and a half ago. He was 101. Um, and, I, and I hadn't seen him. Mean, me and my dad were pretty close, and I saw him about every couple of weeks. But I hadn't seen him for about two months for a few reasons. And he passed in the meantime. And I still remember now, 52 years later, walking into the wake where he was laid out and seeing his casket for the first time. And I wasn't, all that fear and all that anger and confusion didn't come back to me. It was just a warm feeling of appreciation for having to know this man. And I, it, it, in that moment, it didn't need to be any different. And even though I was incredibly sad, it was, um, the sadness was almost pleasant because it was appropriate and I understood it. I didn't need it to be any different. It was that, and it, I, I was there at the end of my mom's life. I was holding her hands, and it was two of the most profound experiences I've ever had. In the case of my mom, it was because I was just able to be with her, and I didn't need her to not die. And she was sick for a long, long time, so it was kind of a blessing. But um, So I'm saying this to you, Tom. Um, from my experience of death from the first time to the last two significant ones are completely different. And... Um, I think my later experience with my mom and my dad were much more based in reality, that it was just an acknowledgement of two lives well lived and how fortunate I was to have known them. You know? And no, no feeling at all ever that, that none of this should have happened, you know, or that uh, not even a feeling of loss, even though um, e- even today, it's been 20 years since my mom died. Every now and then, I, still, I used to call my mom when anything great happened, and I thought it was almost every day that things were... So I talk to her a lot. Even today, something happens that'll pop into my head. I'm going to call my mom about it. So there's still that little condition in thinking. But now, even when that happens, and it doesn't happen very often, it's just a feeling of appreciation for having known this woman, you know, which is how we should feel, you know, about life. We should, we should feel fortunate to have a human life. Why? Because it gives us an opportunity to have a human life. You know, here we're having it. So, and, and it, it's all of that. It's all. It's it's the it's the it's the joy of family and it's the sorrow of family. You know, it's the joy of friends and the sorrow of friends and the um, the, the you know the, the the great times that we develop with other human beings and the incredible tragedies that occur because of other human beings. That's part of life. It's just part of life. And uh, and Brian was talking about anatta. Anatta simply means wrong views of self. So we let go of those views of self and we can have. All of this, we can have all of that life has to offer, and it's it's amazing and incredible. So, thank you, Tom. Uh, Matteo, how are you today? All good, all good. Um, I think I'm, I don't know if there are questions, but plenty to to ask. <laughs> uh, so, first, like a, a more a technical question, like um, I always struggle. Uh, to identify clearly uh, the last uh, the last two links, uh, dependent origination. So especially the the becoming, because uh, to me when you do like what is like the last one of the previous last one, like when you do birth and then old age and sickness basically, uh, I think is already a becoming. So I don't say very well why one link in particular is. Uh, Dedicate is to the only to the becoming. What what it really means? Yeah. Uh, it 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 does mean just that that in the in this moment, be, uh, because of the progression that is set in place from ignorance of four noble truths. And again, the Buddha is just describing these steps that that really occur. You could say almost outside of time until we get to stress and suffering, describing how we become prone to stress and suffering, how we, how we become discontent. And so as you look at the process that the Buddha is describing, excuse me, and this might be where some confusion comes in too, 
The Buddha is not attempting to describe how a human being comes into existence. And notice that he feels no, no such compulsion to describe what everyone else thinks spirituality should be about. How did I get here? The Buddha discounts all of that. And, and, and I think because of his brilliance, he discounts it. Why? Well, I don't need to know where I came from or even how I got here. What I need to know is what the hell is going on while I'm here? And that's what the Buddha is teaching. Because I'm ignorant of four noble truths in this moment, I've become something that is not capable of understanding this moment. I've become further ignorant. But if I recognize and understand and undo this process or interrupt this process, then in this moment I can become awakened. So in the, in the, um, in the clinging and maintaining portion of dependent origination, the Buddha is saying that we maintain our ignorance by clinging and maintaining fabricated views. What are those fabricated views are? Go back one link. They're rooted in ignorance. So again, the, the notion, not the notion, the, the verbiage is to direct us back, always back to, yes, this is caused by ignorance of four noble truths, which then informs that moment. What do I need to do to get out of this? I need to understand stress. And in this sutta, didn't the Buddha describe that, that that is the problem and that's what we develop. Understanding stress, understanding the origination of stress, understanding the cessation of stress, and understanding the Eightfold Path as the path for ending stress and becoming awakened. Does that bring clarity, Matteo? Yeah, yeah, better now, yeah. Good. Thanks. Thank you for the question. And about the, the jhana meditation, it also... Um, but you say, like, basically we don't get distracted once we realize we are doing jhana meditation. So basically when we meditate, we come back to our breath, etc. Mm -hmm. So to extremize that, it means, like, when we are not meditate, basically we are constantly distracted, or we just aware that we are distracted? Yeah, um, yes, you're... you're once you establish even that the even once we take our first breath in jhana meditation, we've established a point of concentration. Even though for most of us it's fleeting, it, it goes with the next breath almost. But as we continue our jhana meditation, we're deepening our concentration. So off our cushions, we're taking that deepening, ever deepening concentration out into our moment by moment life. So as we become more concentrated, we're able to apply the refined mindfulness of the Eightfold Path at the point of contact. And it is just that practical way that we undo the effects of our conditioned thinking and develop that kind of understanding that, that Kandana described in understanding Four Noble Truths, understanding the impermanence of, of each and every moment. And when you think about that, Mateo, and what you're describing, these things that are distracting us in this moment are all impermanent. But when we can place ourselves where they're occurring within the ongoing impermanence of human life, then we can actually see and undo what we've done to ourselves. We can undo to this. Me, like, Pardon me? Oh, sorry if I interrupt. I always say like, because um, uh, maybe I'm doing it wrong. What I was thinking is like to try to erase any distraction or any or any thinking on a, foot, on a future moment, even like in one minute on one day, in order to don't be distracted. And maybe I'm getting mad to that because it's too much. For example, I don't know, if I'm thinking now, oh, I don't have any food at home, I need to go to go to the supermarket to buy, so I already get distracted, I already jump in the future. Yeah. So and sometimes I think it's a, it's a very... Uh, um, practical things if we don't give up a lot in our ordinary urban life and I, I don't know what you think I'm, I'm seriously thinking uh, in two weeks time to go in a sort of a cave to try <laughs> to try to solve this problem so to 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 be to, to not have any distraction at all I'm, 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 I have this tendency to be very extreme yeah and like I get too worried to get too extreme yet. I'd like to go to a cave yet. Yeah. Uh, Matteo, thank you for bringing it up. It's so important. And I would never tell anyone to not go into a cave if you felt like it might be beneficial. But I will tell you that when you leave the cave, you still got to come back into the world. And um, 
the the idea of that type of seclusion may not lead to that uh, the ability to be well concentrated while you're in the world. Um, but I, again, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. What I what I would say is recognize that what you're describing is Dhamma practice. Um, again, there's a little bit of doubt. Uh, in, in your uh, in your practice, that's leading you to say you need to do something more. Um, but uh, like we discussed a little bit earlier, you could spend two weeks in a cave or two, or two years in a cave. You still have to get out of the cave and come back into the world. So yeah, but that, that's point. It's like a uh, sorry. Uh, I don't think I've adopted on the practice because it's been many years that I started. I think, uh, I don't know if it's getting dangerous. I start to get pissed off <coughs> with what I start to get really, really pissed off. It's like, uh, Excuse me, Teo, I missed uh, what you just said. I coughed over you. Oh, see, I start, start to get really pissed off with... Uh, with what we call life around, so I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying I want to commit suicide. I don't want to do that. But I see, like, uh, I think I'm. I'm quite self-disciplined. I can study the Dharma. I can have meditation. Mm-hmm. But as soon as like I open the door of my eyes and go out, I see a lot of stuff that I don't like at all. And to be to be honest, it's many years I don't like it at all. But I I start to feel that I like more and more and more. And I was thinking, my idea of the metaphorical cave is to go to the cave in order to not never go out from this cave. Not for fear, just to don't engage uh, with the rest of society. So I feel like, uh, I don't know, I'm in a moment that I feel very overwhelming by the society. This is like, uh, I, f- I found whatever is allowed very I got you. Yep. So that's no, I, I understand that completely. In fact, that's... It's kind of the motivation that sent Siddhartha Gautama away from the palace because of that. Um, so, I, th- I think we should have a conversation one on one about this because there's there it, it's it's a rather deep commitment you're talking about. Um, and as I'm listening to you, you know, the, the, it, it, it may be it may be a. a, a, a this may be just what you need. And my hesitancy is I, I can't know that. Um, we should be disenamored with the world, but we can also go a little bit too far with it. In other words, the, the Dhamma teaches us to not be entangled in the world, to understand there's going to be stress and suffering, to understand there's going to be extremes of human experience. I mean, there's going to be people that, that there's going to be babies that starve to death. You know, every day that happens. Um, there's people killing each other. There's wars. There's all kinds of terrible things that go on in the world while there's all kinds of wonderful things going on in the world. The Dhamma teaches us to be disentangled from all of that. But the, the Dhamma also teaches us if we've had enough of the world, it's okay to leave it behind. So we have a choice within the Dhamma. We can continue to be disentangled with the world while being deeply involved in the world. But some of us may realize that there's nothing left in the world that interests us. And it's okay to leave. And I'm not talking about a physical leaving. I'm talking it's okay to, to go live in a cave or go live in the forest or some other way that is not involved in modern world. There's nothing at all that's wrong with that, provided that your intention is, is rooted in reality, meaning right intention, the second factor of the Eightfold Path. The intention to recognize and abandon craving and clinging. And if that's facilitated by leaving the world behind, I don't see anything wrong with it, but it's important to recognize your intention. If your intention is uh, escape because you simply don't want to deal with yourself in the world, then the cave's not going to be of value. But I, I, again, Mateo, I would honor any decision you make, and I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about it. Yeah. But it's Thanks. important. I mean, and again, that's we all have that choice. I have that choice every day. Um, I, I've, I've created a life that is um, as close to living in a cave as you can without living in a cave. I mean, I live a very quiet... Um, My cave would be, would be metaphorical because I live in Scotland. It's very cold, so I have to find like, something in between a, a house and a cave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and, and again, well, let, let's talk more about it. Did you ever get in contact with my friend Larry up there in, in Scotland? Yeah, 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 he contacted me. I think probably we will try to, to meet at some point or somehow. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, he's a great guy. You'll, you'll, you both will enjoy each other. So thanks, Mateo. Like, yeah, send me an email when we can talk and we'll set up a time. <laughs> Alex, how are you? Hi, John. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I've, I've really enjoyed the class, actually. Um, I, I missed last week and I haven't caught up with it. So, But considering I've really I've followed it quite easily, um, and very well delivered, so thank you. Um, thank you. Not too much to add. Uh, just, just on what Matteo was saying, though, just briefly, I, you know, I've had moments where I feel the same, and um, I, I just look around and so kind of frustrated with the world. But then I, you know, I'm getting better at reminding myself that that in itself is, I think, is clinging and craving to wishing it to be different. Yeah. And. It's a skill to try and accept it for what it is when you don't like it. Um, but it's, for me, I've got a friend who gets very, very, very angry at the world. And I've said this to him and I see it in him. And I just think it doesn't serve him at all. I don't yeah. see his anger at the world or his lack of accepting it for what it is as helpful at all. So I think the best thing we can do is accept it. Try not to let it um, ruin our moment or... Yeah. Or trying, yeah, just try and accept it for what it is and keep moving forwards and forgiving ourselves in each moment. Um, and yeah, we just need to see it as another form of clinging and craving if, yeah. if we want it to be than what it is. Um, and it's hard, it's a hard skill to learn, I think, but that's what I remind myself, and I think I'm, I'm getting better. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if that helps at all, but um, overall, really enjoyed it. And, and for me, like, there's another moment that gives me a lot of hope that's that's the best thing I've got from today is yeah. every moment is new and as long as you're nice as long as you're kind to yourself about the last moment in the next moment then you're going to be fine so yeah yeah thanks for well said Alex you know the the, uh, the Dhamma teaches us to understand the common human problem that leads to all the all the grief and suffering in the world greed aversion and deluded thinking and when we first, when we can understand that that is what corrupted us, my own greed, my own aversion, and my own deluded thinking, then I can understand other people. And I don't have to, from understanding what is the root cause of all human ills, I don't need to take it personally, and I don't need to crusade against it. But what I can do, and it's, it, to me it's the most profound thing that I've ever developed in myself through the Eightfold Path, is I no longer am contributing to the ills of myself or the world. Again, that's I use that word, the phrase a lot. That's liberation, and that is the that that's the highest goal that any human being can ever achieve. That doesn't mean that in practical ways we we do more in the world to help people. But the most practical thing I can do is to stop causing stress in the world. And you know, not that the Buddha didn't teach salvation, but if the world is going to save itself, it's through that. And nothing else. We're not going to legislate ourselves out of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. That just creates more tension, doesn't it? So you've heard me say this over and over again. The most loving thing I can do for myself and all other sentient beings is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. And then if I'm involved in altruistic activities, I'm simply going to be more effective at it because I won't be creating my own tension in the world by pointing out all the things that are wrong. You know, we, it, it seems to me in my 66 years, we've really devolved to the point of recognizing things that were not, um, uh, that were social ills to only focusing on all the things that are wrong. And we're really losing sight of the fact that life in general is, is both wonderful and horrible. But if we're only focused on the horrible, we never see the wonderful. And so we're losing even that balance in life. And that's really unfortunate. Life is incredible because we're awake today. That's it. You know, we're here to experience it. That, that there's, there's things in life that we'd like to be different has always been like that. There were the same issues that we're dealing with today, every single one of them was present during the Buddhist time and before his time. You know, you, you can read the, the, you know, the, the, the great philosophers um, that were, you know, 800 to 400, 300 years before Siddhartha. 
and they all talk about the same problems. We're still dealing with the same problem today. It's anger, it's a four noble truths. The Buddha describes the problem in this sutta, and he tells us how to get out of it. So, uh, we, you're all expressing that in a very clear way, too. It, um, you should all be encouraged by your own Dhamma practice. Yes, Jeff? Uh, Mateo, if, if you'd like some uh, pointers on cave life, I had a literal cave for about two years on a nice secluded farm in the Appalachian foothills, and it is peaceful. You do get time, but when you come back, it's the same crazy world. Yeah. It, nothing's changed. So if you don't deal with it in in that setting, you're you're going to have to come to terms with it eventually. Either way, not that a vacation's not a nice thing. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a, a Thomas Martin who was a, a Catholic uh, Christian uh, monk. Wrote a lot of good books. Um, not a Buddhist practitioner, but he wrote, I think it was called The Seven Story Mountain, but it might be a different title. But one of the lines in that book I remember, he spent 10 years meditating up on top of a mountain, and he said the, he said the good thing, he said the only bad thing about that is that at some point you have to come back into the marketplace, meaning you got to come off the mountain and live in the world, um, unless you're not going to live in the world. You know, and there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but we'll, we'll talk more about it. Thank you, Jeff. There, um, again, it gets back to that motivation. Am I escaping from something that it needs no escape from, or am I going to deepen concentration? So, you know, we'll... John, can I ask a question about the concentrated mind? Just sure. Quickly, because, um, this, is, this is like the concentrated mind has kind of played on my mind since, last, since our session last Thursday, and I'm really interested in it because... Um, and yet, and it's so interesting, people are talking now about, you know, sort of frustrations and irritations of life. But yesterday I was in a bar with my friend Ingrid and we were sitting, we were having a couple of drinks and uh, the waitress came over and slapped down a reservation sign on the table and then walked away. And I was thinking, if you're going to put the reservation sign on the table, at least tell us when the table is reserved from. Like, don't just put the reservation sign on the table and walk away. And I observed myself in that moment thinking, how thoughtless and how unconcentrated a mind does that person have? Which was actually a narrative about me because I wouldn't have done that. So therefore, I'm considering myself to be more thoughtful. And my friend turned around to me and she said to me, Louise, it's just a piece of paper. Yeah. It's just a piece of paper. It doesn't mean anything. Yes, Louise, but you you described it so perfectly well of taking that, what that woman did personally. You you were that person. That's personalizing it. Concentrated mind, though, the fact that she was so negligent at that moment to communicate clearly, think about other people. Is that a concentrated mind or is that an unconscious? You mean you mean the the woman that dropped in no the reservation thing? Yeah, with oh, no I don't. Here's here's the best answer I can give. Um, I don't, I'm not concerned about whether she was well concentrated or not. What I'm concerned about is my level of concentration in that moment. But you, but you experienced a measure of concentration just because you were able to see your own quality of mind in relation to being concentrated or not. That's important to see that. So whether other people are concentrated or not is not part of jhana practice or or the Dhamma. You know, you'll you'll recognize it probably more um, than ever, but you won't take it personally anymore either. Right, okay, great. Yeah, Yeah. great great question and great observation, all of you. So uh, we'll finish with metta. Um, I know every now and then I forget it, but I like to finish our classes with metta. And um, we'll continue with our jhana structure study next week. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. 
peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thank you, John. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Alex, Alex, do you have the, uh, I think I sent you the link to the document folders that has the meditation. Yeah, maybe you did. Um, I'll go over my emails. I think I have got it somewhere, yeah. Okay, if you you can't find it, just let me know and I'll send it to you again. Yeah, I'll let you know. Okay. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.